We'll open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2 and verse verses 6 through 8 this morning. And the Word of God says this in Titus chapter 2 verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. We have been talking about, if you remember from this book of Titus, about this issue of life-on-life discipleship that fleshes itself out in biblical relationships whereby we're coming alongside of one another and practicing the one another's and investing into one another so that we become more and more like Jesus. That is what discipleship is, coming alongside of one another mutually so that we grow in Christ together, not individualistically, but in community together as the spiritual family of God. You know, recently someone asked me, why is this topic so important to you? this topic of life-on-life discipleship. And, of course, my quick answer, and I'm not, I don't typically answer this way, it's, well, because it's biblical, right? should go without saying. And then I began to ponder the question and um, this issue of life-on-life discipleship and why somebody would ask that. And I think it makes sense to me why we wonder about why this is such an important issue. And the reason why we often think this way is because It doesn't fit into the framework of what we have experienced in our life. Maybe for many of us who have grown up in the church, perhaps, or who have been around the church for a number of years, or maybe even briefly, we have yet to experience people really invested into us. Maybe somebody who took you under their wing and began to invest into you and to seek to impact you. Maybe you've really never seen that tangibly. In one sense, broadly speaking, everything is a discipleship, right? Um, You sitting here this morning is discipleship. You're sitting under the teaching of the Word of God. And you're called to respond to everything that Jesus has commanded in obedience, and that is discipleship. Um, When we interact with one another and we speak the truth to one another just informally, that is discipleship as well. And yet what we're talking about and we've been uh, saying from Titus chapter 2 is that we need to get down to the nitty-gritty of this issue even more so to talk about discipleship in terms of life on life, of being having these relationships that are closely knit because we understand that we're a spiritual family and we're called to live together in community and not individualistically. I believe in discipleship and it's so important because it's biblical, but I believe in it because I have seen it in my own life, beloved. I have seen it in my own life. I have often said to people that Not one of us, including myself, is original or really special in the sense that none of us are people who have, who are who we are because somehow we have brought something to the table here of salvation. Each of us are a product of the people that have come before us. First of all, a product of God's amazing saving work in our lives. But then a product of those who have come before us, who have, who have invested into us who have poured their lives into us. Um, Some of you know my testimony. 
that I didn't get saved until the age of about 17. And I grew up in a, in a family. Uh, I was adopted here in the States, came from Mexico City to live with a family who adopted me. And they didn't really have a strong family infrastructure, a biological family infrastructure growing up. It was a very dysfunctional kind of family, even though we did go to church uh, and all of that. When the Lord saved me, I didn't derive my greatest examples from my own biological family. Maybe many of you here can say the same thing. You didn't grow up in a strong home, a biological family. And for me, when I got saved, right away, the Lord set the trajectory of my life toward this area of, of, of people investing into me. I remember that shortly after the time that I had gotten saved, I went to a college retreat where I met the new college shepherd. They were introducing him at this retreat. And we hit it off pretty well. I was a baby believer. I mean, I still had the eggshell on my head of just having been hatched in the Lord. And I'm, I'm sta- sitting there with all these college students, most of whom don't want to walk with the Lord. And I'm interacting with this guy. And we hit it off. And towards the end of that college retreat, he said, Hey, uh, give me a call when you get back into town so that maybe we can hook up and meet together. And I'm thinking, what? Meet together? This guy actually wants to spend time with me? So we got back on a Sunday afternoon. And Monday morning, would you believe, at 6 a.m. I got up Monday morning and called his house. And his wife answered the phone. She said, hello? She was, they were newly wet, so she was pregnant. And I said, hi, such and such. This is Kempis Hernandez. You, I don't know if you remember me. We met at the college. She, yeah, she said, yeah, Kempis, I just saw you yesterday. I said, hey, your husband told me that when we got back into town to give him a call so that we can begin to meet. She said, oh, well, he's gone already. He was a seminary student and, and uh, he had already gone to, uh, to teach in downtown L.A., a, a public school there. He says, he's, he's gone campus, but when he gets back, I'll be sure to let him know that you called. Well, long story short, he and I began to meet together for a, a number of years. And I remember the first time that he met with me at Jack in the Box and he said, Kempis, I don't want to be your dad. I know that that's not who I am. I merely want to meet with you and show you what it means to walk with God from the Bible. That's all I want to do. I just want to open up the scriptures and teach you what it means to walk with the Lord. And I thought that was the greatest thing. That guy took me in my, our first study was through a study on the sovereignty of God because he understood my own background and, and the murder of my mom. If you know my testimony and all of that, help me understand how, how I was to respond to the, in the sovereignty of God to the, the circumstances of my life. And he solidified for me more and more during that time what it meant that God was in control of everything. And he became like a spiritual older brother to me during that time. Then I went off to college. And at the new church that we started attending, um, the Lord surrounded me with five men, all somewhere from three to 30 years older than me, including a couple of elders. And I ended up moving in with three of these, these brothers. And um, that was a huge time of growth for me, where I learned so many lessons about what it meant to love and to lead and about relationships, not only as we lived together. Uh, and these brothers were all from three to 10 years older than me. They were spiritual older brothers to me, but they began to invest into me and confront the, the issues of my own life. I was the baby amongst them. And that was a great time of growth. And I got to see in, in, in action what discipleship looks like life on life and even in the context of ministry together. And to make the long story short, beloved, listen, over the last 20 to 25 years or so, 
by the grace of God, the Lord has surrounded me with a number of spiritual brothers and spiritual fathers who have invested into me in some way, shape, or form. And can I just tell you this? 80 to 90% of those individuals who have impacted me were not individuals who initiated those times with me. I pursued them. And I'm not telling you that to pat myself on the back. I'm telling you that for this reason, that many of you have responded to some of the messages and your response is, Kempis, I want this. The problem is the older aren't initiating investing into the younger the way that they should be. And I would say, you know what? Again, that's an exhortation to the older to be taking the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and, and taking back the ground that belongs to you as older saints to train the younger. But I would also say to you who are younger that you need to be uh, actively pursuing aggressively and inviting the input of the older into your life. You need to have a go-getter mentality. And may you be a part of a new generation of believers, not only in this church, but all across America, where this is not common for the older to take the baton and invest into the younger. May you be a part of a new generation where you model what it is like to invest into the younger and the next generation. Amen? Be a go-getter. Pursue this. I have seen, I'm living testimony of what this can do in the life of a young person by the grace of God. And this is how God has designed His church. God has designed His church, as we've been seeing this, as a place of spiritual nurturing, of spiritual nurturing, of living life amongst one another and investing into one another. And that's what we want to see here at Calvary Bible Church. We want to be a church with a, a growing atmosphere and culture about next generational type of mentality where we are invested into the next generation. And we see that as the core of our mission, which is the great commission of making disciples. That's what this is. So you ask me, why do I believe in discipleship in the church? Because it is biblical. Jesus modeled it for us. And then his disciples followed up and took the baton and did the same thing. And then in the course of church history, even as we recently looked at the Reformation, for, for century after century after century, beloved, the way that God has built his church is by people making disciples and investing into one another. That's how God builds his church here on this earth, and his son is exalted. And not only that, but I've seen the fruit of it in our own church as well. How many of you have I been able, by the grace of God, to glean from as older men? How many of you have taught me lessons as I've watched you from a distance or from teaching or preaching or small groups or just relationships? I have learned much from you. This young pastor has learned much from many of you. And I want you to know that we all need to have that attitude and that humility to recognize that we can all teach one another something. Amen? We can all do that. Well, this is what Titus is all about, about great commissional type of ministry, if you will. We've seen how various groups have been instructed about how they are to conduct themselves in the church in the midst of a crooked and perverse society like Crete, how they are to be conducting themselves in a godly way, not as an end goal in and of itself, but so that they might be positioned to be an example to others in the church, invest themselves into others in the church, And display Christ to a world that desperately needs to see good examples of what it means to be Christ-like, right? That is what this book has been all about. Paul discipled Titus. Paul discipled Timothy. Paul discipled Epaphroditus and Epaphras and multiple individuals that we can read about in the epistles. He was a discipler of people, elders. 
in chapter 1 are to be disciples of the flock. They are to be an example in certain kinds of men that we might disciple you from a distance or up closely. We are to be disciples of people as your shepherds. Older women. We preached four messages on older women investing themselves into the younger women of the church. And that that is at the core, older ladies of your mission. That you are to be investing yourself into younger women. And now we return to this relationship that is to exist between older men who are to be discipling younger men. Younger men. We come to Titus chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. Where Titus, first and foremost, as the pastor of this church or of these people, is to specifically himself exhort young men in the church. But also, by extension, the church is to be investing into young men. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. Titus is to exhort the young men to be sensible. And who are these young men? What is what was considered young? Well, as we've said before, you can't be so too dogmatic about this. But approximately, roughly anyone, listen to this, between the ages of 13 and 40, roughly speaking, was considered young when Paul writes to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and says, Let no one, Timothy, look down on your youthfulness. Timothy was in his late 30s, most likely. And he's, calling, he's talking to Timothy about, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. In Philemon, verse 9, Paul refers to himself as the aged apostle. And he's probably in his 60s during that time. So he considers himself an older man or an old man, if you will. So when we're talking about younger men here, think about anyone between the ages of 13 and 40. And I know that that lower age probably shocks some of you. What? 13-year-olds were considered uh, men? Well, they were considered young men. There's this myth that we call adolescence in our society, right? The teen years that are kind of viewed as this neutral time that's really sadly characterized by irresponsibility and and aimlessness on the part of young men who are quote-unquote teens or self-indulgence. It's a time when young people are allowed to squander time, to not invest themselves into others, to have fun without defining what that means, without consequences, because they don't know better because after all, they're teenagers, right? Right? We often think of that in terms of that age of adolescence. Well, I want to remind you who are teens, to use our societal terminology. That according to Scripture, if you're, if you're over the age of 13, roughly speaking, you are considered a young man. A young man. So think of this text as directly applicable to you as a young man. But not only that, if you're a single college age man, you are a young man. And not only that, but if you are a married uh, uh, man and you are under, roughly speaking, approximately speaking, under the age of 40, you are also a young man, though you may be married. And you must sit under those who are older. So this hits one way or another. This hits all of us, right? Now, whether you are a single young man or a married young man, God, I want to remind you this morning, God expects you to glorify him by living for him, not living for yourself. Solomon learned this the hard way, didn't he? A man who squandered his gifting and his abilities, didn't maximize his time for the glory of God, didn't King Solomon. And toward the end of his life in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1, he writes this, 
Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Interesting. Why youth? Why youth? He says, before the evil days come, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Why is Solomon saying that? Because he's saying when you get older, energy and vitality and etc. dwindles. It's the reality, right, of, of sin. And we live in a broken world and our bodies deteriorate. And there's no more vitality there. So he says, remember God, acknowledge Him, live with Him at the center of your life. Live for Him in the days of your youth when you have the energy and the time to invest yourself into His kingdom. Solomon had learned a lesson, right? He'd wasted and squandered the prime years of his own life when he had lots of time and lots of energy. And he says, I have learned that it's in our youth that you are to keep God at the center of everything because you all won't always be young. You won't always be young. And that's a danger for every young person, right? It's a danger for every single young person to think that things will always be the way that they are. That you will always have the same amount of energy that you have. That you will always be young. That things will, will always, always, you'll always have the, the, um, the time to carry out all of your life goals. And you can procrastinate now because you have many, many years ahead of you, right? And yet as we've learned even recently in the life of our body, you never know when the Lord is going to take you home. You just never know. And so we need to give heed to passages like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, which says that we need to redeem the time or make the most of our time because the days are evil. And young people especially need to be reminded of this. And so all of this highlights the importance of maximizing your time as a young person, as a young man, specifically according to this text of being a man who doesn't squander your life away, but makes a dent for the kingdom of Jesus Christ here on this earth. But what we learn from this text in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, is that this is not just going to happen. It doesn't just happen automatically. Young men need to be engaged by people. Young men need to be instructed And that's what we have here in verses 6 through 8. We have instructions given specifically first and foremost to Titus as the pastor. And so I take these things as hitting me between the eyes first and foremost. I want you to know that. But then by extension, the whole church, and especially you who are older men, that we need to be mentoring young men in the church. Investing ourselves into young men. These are instructions that apply to all of God's people. To the whole church. In fulfillment of the Great Commission as well. I just want to remind you of that. That's, this is what it means to make disciples here. And this was an urgent thing here on the island of Crete. And it's an urgent thing in our culture as well. Al Mohler, in a great little book that I would recommend every single one of you to get, especially you dads, wrote this little pamphlet called From Boy to Man. From Boy to Man, The Marks of Manhood. And he writes in here the following... In the context of much confusion, males are especially vulnerable in our present culture. The feminization of society mixed with confusing cultural signals has led many boys and young men to be uncertain and unaware of their masculinity and proper role. In a desperate search for a secure male identity, some are attracted to gross distortions. Some embrace a brutalized and arrogant posture, while others retreat into insecure manhood, never understanding a man's responsibility to lead. 
We now face the phenomenon of perpetual boyhood on the part of many males. Refusing to grow up, these young men function as boys well into their 20s, some even into their 30s and beyond. An extended male adolescence marks the lifestyles, expectations, and behavior of far too many young males whose masculine identity is embraced awkwardly, if at all. But the Bible is clear about man's responsibility to exercise spiritual maturity and spiritual leadership in their home and in the church. Of course, this spiritual maturity takes time to develop, and it is a gift of the Holy Spirit working within the life of the believer. Such a great, great statement, isn't it? That describes our culture today. And I would add to what he said, that, that God uses the church... And the church is a place that is to be a place of spiritual nourishment for young men to invest into the next generation of young men. So that young men would grow and mature. And so that's what we want to see in this text here in particular. How do we mentor young men? We're giving two, we're given two basic and straightforward ways here in this text that God's church is to mentor young men that they might grow in Christ and display Christ to a lost world. There are two basic, straightforward ways that God's church is to mentor young men. And I can tell you right now off the bat, these are not going to be radical things that you're going to hear this week or the next time that we're in Titus. These are things that are pretty straightforward, but they are things that were frankly, beloved, not abounding amongst us. And frankly, most churches aren't. With this new next generation type of mentality. And it's applicable to all of us. As I said, this is not just a text for young men. This is for all of us. Yes, for you who are single young men or married young men. This hits us between the eyes first and foremost. But also this is a a passage for parents. Where if you have young men in your homes already, this is a call for us to take back the ground that many of us have, have abdicated. You need to be training your young men in your home. And this is also a text for all of us as a church. Because we, if we have a kingdom-minded perspective, it's not just about our home and no more. It's about the church of Christ being who God has called it to be, right? So we need to have a vision for investing into young men in the church. As a, in the same way that we have, have to have a vision for investing into older, I mean into young women in the church. First of all, what is the first basic straightforward way that God's church is to mentor young men? We must mentor young men first and foremost by relentless instruction. Relentless instruction. In other words, we are to be engaging young men relationally, motivated by love for them. And the ultimate motivation is the glory of Christ that Jesus would be exalted through his church as young men be the type of men that God has called them to be. What's common in our society is, is leave them alone. They're in a very difficult time of their life. Or eventually they'll come around. Or they'll get there eventually. The more that they grow physically, they'll come around to maturing. This is sort of an automatic thing that's going to happen in the eyes of many people. Or there's other people that just say, you know what, boys will be boys. That just comes with the territory of, of being a young man, single or married, I would say. And yet what we are instructed here in verse 6, and, and Titus is told by Paul, is that Titus, verse 6, is to lead the charge in instructing young men. Look at verse 6. Likewise, and he used that, verse, that word likewise in verse 3. Likewise, and just in the same way that there are implications for the gospel to older women and older men in the context. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. 
And I love that word in the New American Standard, urge, because this is a a matter of critical importance, of utmost importance. The word urge means, means to come alongside of in a way where we instruct or exhort. But there's urgency here because this is a present tense command to Titus. Titus, you are to continually urge young men to come alongside of them and call them to this relentlessly, diligently. Why is that? Because this is not going to be training that happens overnight, right? He's to be relentless. It's a lifelong process, not only for Titus, but for the whole church and for you who are parents as well of young men. You understand that. They won't, they won't mature automatically. They're not just going to choose to conduct themselves this way. So Titus is to exhort the young men to urge them to be sensible. And why is that? Why is that? We know from experience, right? For many of us having been a young man, how hard-headed we could be, right? How proud we could be. Or maybe you are a young man. And you see your vulnerabilities and your susceptibilities. You see your pride. That often you think you you know better than others around you. This is whether you're a single young man or a married young man. Arrogance and pride is just as prevalent amongst um, young married men as single men. One pastor writes this. In youth there is often that confidence which comes from lack of experience. In almost every sphere of life, a younger person will be more reckless than his elders for the simple reason that he has not yet discovered all the things which can go wrong. To take a simple example, he will often drive a motor car much faster simply because he has not yet discovered how easily an accident can take place or on how slender a piece of metal the safety of a car depends. He will often shoulder a responsibility in a much more carefree spirit than an older person because he has not known the difficulties and has not experienced how easily shipwreck may be made. No one can buy experience. That is something for which only the years can pay. So true, isn't it? So true. How many times have you been or come across young men or been one yourself? Where you think you know better than, than the, the older person. When you think that the previous generation knows nothing and the present one has all of the answers to life for the first time in the history of mankind, right? How many times have we not experienced that in our own life or in the lives of people that we've interacted with? The younger. Why is this? Well, young men struggle from an ancient and universal disease. Maybe you've heard of it. I call it YMD. And it stands for a young man's disease. Right? You heard of it? Very prevalent. It's been around back since the time of Adam. And Adam displayed this disease when he didn't lead his wife and step in in the gap and keep Eve from being tempted and deceived. It is ancient. Every single man has derived this disease from Adam, his daddy. Over the history of mankind. A young man's disease. You say, well, what are the symptoms of young man's disease? It, pre- it, it, it rears its ugly head any time that you think that newness is the way to go and oldness, no one who's old or gray-haired has anything to teach you. That's when it rears its ugly head, young man's disease. Any time that you reject the old because the new is, is much better and you figured it out for yourself and you don't need to listen to the old folks anymore. 
Anytime that you reject instruction and you don't invite the counsel or the input of older saints amongst you, you are showing young man's disease. Anytime that you are functioning individualistically, whether you know it or you don't, autonomously, and you don't think that you need to answer to anyone's authority, and no one should tell you what to do, and you don't need anybody, that's the spirit of the age, right? But that's not the way that Christian men are to function. That is young men's disease being expressed. Paul knew he had it at one point, and even in his life, so he was given a a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble, right? Titus knew that he had it. Paul is, is, exhorts Titus, knowing that Titus is in his early to mid-30s when he writes this book, and Titus is a young man. So if Titus is going to urge young men to be sensible, then Titus must model being a sensible man. So Titus had the disease too. What is it? What is the biblical term for the young man's disease? And Pastor Brock preached on it two Sundays ago, didn't he? We didn't even talk about your sermon, brother, right? He just, the spirit moves, right? And he just preached on the issue. Pride. Pride. That's the biblical term. Pride. Arrogance. That is seen explicit in our lives or, or subtle. And for young men, it's manifested, beloved, in a tendency to live for self, not sensibly. Not sensibly. And so Paul says, urge the young men to be sensible. And we've seen that quality of sensible. And in a sense, everybody in the church is called to be sensible. In chapter 1, verse 8, elders are to be sensible. In chapter 2, verse 2, um, we see how older men are to be tem- temperate, dignified, sensible. We see that older women in chapter 2, verse 4, are to teach the young women to be sensible, which means, implies, that older women must be sensible themselves if they're going to be teaching young women to be sensible. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, we're, we're told that grace teaches us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So it's something that every Christian should be pursuing. It means sober mindedness, to be clear headed in one's thinking, so that it leads to a life of, of self denial in the power of the Spirit, of self control, of, of self discipline, if you will. I love the meaning of, of possessing self mastery. Self-mastery. And we know that the only way that that is possible in a way that glorifies God is when you are being empowered by the Spirit of God. When you're filling your mind with the Word of God. How might we describe our life before coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Prior to knowing Christ, sin was our master, right? We were enslaved and held captive by our sinful thinking, We lived to indulge in our own sin, but now as Christians, we have been rescued not only from the penalty of the wrath of God for our sins, but we have been rescued from the power of sin over our lives so that now we are no longer to have sin as our master. We are freed. This has to do with saved thinking that manifests itself in self-mastery in life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that we have the mind of Christ... We have the mind of Christ. That's a present tense reality, but also an ongoing pursuit through the saturation of the mind in the word of Christ, right? We have the mind of Christ now. No longer a depraved, wicked, dark mind, but now the mind of Christ. Urge the young men to be sensible, Paul says to Titus. Commenting on the importance of this overarching character quality of being sensible. One pastor writes this, 
There is a risk as there is a glory in being young. For that very reason, the first thing at which any young person must aim is self-mastery. No one can ever serve others until he has mastered himself. He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes a city, Proverbs 16.32. Self-discipline is not among the more glamorous of the virtues, but it is the very stuff of life, because when the eagerness of youth is supported by the strength of self-mastery, something really great comes into life. What a great statement. I love that last part because it's, it's wonderful to be young and to have energy and to be strong and to have time, right, from a human perspective. But without self-control and self-discipline, without harnessing your desires and your passions, you will quickly squander your days on this earth and not glorify Christ. But directed and aimed at glorifying God, you are a lethal weapon in the hands of Almighty God, right? Right? Because he's going to use you in a mighty, mighty way. Not because you deserve it or because you're all that, but because you're submitting yourself to his will. Isn't that the call of the gospel? To be sensible, you must lay down your life at the very beginning, boasting in nothing that you have brought to the table that can possibly save you. Not your works, not your religion, not your attendance, not anything. You come bankrupt knowing that there's nothing that you can offer to the Lord. It is all based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the good news. Not what I can offer God. What God freely gives to me in His Son, Jesus Christ. But it will cost you your whole life. A life of self-denial and self-control. And instead embracing the purposes of God. Right? It's the call of the gospel. A life of being sensible. Now notice in verse 6. He says, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. And at the beginning of verse 7, in the New American Standard at least, he says, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. That little phrase there at the beginning of verse 7, in all things, can go with either, either verse 7 or at the end of verse 6. And I think structurally it is better, it's a better fit to tie that to the, to the end of verse 6. So that verse 6 should read this way. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. So this is comprehensive, all-encompassing and broad in the young man's life. And so the question for us is, what are some of those areas where young men must be sensible? Must be sensible. So I want you to go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Back a few pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul writing to Timothy here, like I said, in his late 30s. And he's considered a, uh, um, young. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Just a couple of things there before we look at some of these areas where young men are called to be sensible. And there are others, but we want to look at some of these right now. There are a couple of things there that I think are very important for us at the beginning of verse 12. For one thing, the fact that Paul is instructing Timothy to let no one look down on his youthfulness should tell us that it is quite possible, and it's a reality, that we can invite or evoke Older people looking down upon us when we're younger, right? By living a life of sin. By making wrong decisions. And people will draw judgments based upon those things. And those actions. 
But the thing that also comforts me about the beginning of verse 12 is this, that you as a young man can actually remove the stigma that comes from being a young person, a young man specifically, by the way that you live, right? Timothy, let no one look down on your youthfulness. But rather, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. You, as a young person, can remove the stigma that comes from people's perspective about what comes with youth and the low expectations that come with that by the way that you live. And we see some of those areas here. Notice, in speech, speech in the way that you talk. This is a huge weakness, especially with young men, right? And I'm not just talking about young men in their quote-unquote teens, brothers. I'm talking about this in our lives as well as men, especially those of us who are younger, right? To not use uh, words carefully, to not use words that edify and words that are wise, or to speak too much or too elaborately about certain things, to not be careful with the way that we use our words, or especially with coarse jesting and, and joking around that it hurts people and that damages people, that damages relationships. How easy it is for young men to use their words in a destructive manner and not in a helpful manner. But the older that we get, right, the more we realize, even from our own experience, that words are powerful and have an impact for the good or the bad. And we need to be careful how we use them. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word, which means putrid or filthy, rotten word, proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that is building up according to the need of the moment. I like that. It's to be appropriate timely. Everything doesn't always need to be said every single moment. You don't always need to speak everything that you're thinking, right? You need to be driven by what is edifying, what builds up, what is appropriate for a specific moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. It is for their benefit to grant favor and blessing upon them. Young men need to be sensible in their speech Look at chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Timothy. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, in conduct, which refers to the way that you live righteously in obedient response to the Word of God. What are some of those areas where young men with relation to their conduct should be exhorted? What about with devotion to work? Countering the spirit of the age of, of justifying young men, single or married, being lazy and slothful. That is such a prevalent sin with young men, isn't it? So prevalent. It's very difficult for me to understand that type of mentality, by the way. I remember as a four or five year old in Mexico City, already being given a box of chocolates and candy and gum and put out in the middle of the intersection in Mexico City to, to sell uh, a candy just to make ends meet for my mom who was basically living with a man that wasn't her husband. And from a very early age, having to do that. And then at the age of eight, having to work with, in plumbing with, with uncles of mine to earn minimum wage at four twenty-five an hour. And now I look at our society, beloved, full of young men who are just slothful and lazy, who never know the value of a, of a well-earned dollar, who depend upon others to give them what they need. And what's hard about that is that a young man left to himself that way and not engaged and not exhorted to be sensible in the area of devotion to work. What is the trajectory of that young man's life? 
How is he ever going to be able to lead a wife and kids and support and protect his family and provide for them if in his own life he can't take ownership for himself and have self-mastery over his own self? So we need to exhort young men to be devoted to work, to be sensible in that area. What about with regards to conduct, their devotion to the right use of their time for the Lord's work rather than for themselves? It is in, in, in youth where young men in particular don't recognize and see the, the gift of, of God and the beauty of having time used for God's glory. Young men are especially vulnerable to take time for granted, to squander time, to not maximize time, to live in the moment and make decisions, not thinking about and the here and now, not thinking about what, what's going to happen down the line if they keep going that direction. There's a tendency to be short-sighted with one's time. Procrastination is a huge sin in our society, isn't it? For all of us, older and younger, but especially for the young because they take for granted their time and their energy that they're always going to be in this state where they can just pick it up and go at some point when they get their act together. Concerning procrastination, listen to what J.C. Ryle writes. Serious things tomorrow, says the heathen, to one who warned him of coming danger, but his tomorrow never came Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is the Lord's. Satan cares, cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions, so long as they are fixed for tomorrow, end quote. Powerful, huh? Many a young person has recognized that as the Lord took them out of this earth because they procrastinated. They never accomplished the things that they thought that they would accomplish. They took life for granted and time for granted. So he says, be an example in even conduct. And I think with relation to work and the use of time, those are very pertinent areas for young people, especially young men. Then he says in verse 12, love, love, faith, and purity. Be an example of self-sacrificial love. Young people and young men especially need to guard themselves against a sense of self-entitlement that it's always about what I get. And even as young married men, we can be that way in our marriages, right? It's all about what my wife does for me as a young, as a young husband. She needs to fulfill her role and serve me. And yet Jesus calls us to be men in our marriages, older or younger, who laid down our lives for our wives and love them as Jesus loves his church, Right? Love, love, self-sacrifice and service. Then he says faith, which refers not to saving faith, but to commitment, to faithfulness in your life. Be an example, Timothy, of, of faithfulness, of commitment, which includes being a person of your word who keeps your commitments, who follows through with the things that you say you're going to do. And then he says purity, purity. Show yourself an example of purity, as one who believes. And that's a huge area, isn't it? The area of purity. You're already there in First Timothy. Just turn or look down in chapter 5 of First Timothy in verse 1. Where we are told how to interact with one another in the context of the local church. Which really, in summation, as we are to be conducting ourselves as a spiritual family. And relating to one another that way. Do not sharply rebuke an older man. But how are you to treat older men? Appeal to them as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and listen to this, and to the younger women as sisters in all purity, in all purity. Paul says to Timothy, you need to make sure that you rightly relate to God's people in the context of the church, 
And one that I'm sure hit Timothy between the eyes is make sure that you treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. And Timothy was a young man in his late 30s, right? So for us as young men, how is your thought life with regards to the opposite sex? Are you guarding your thoughts? How do you relate to women? How do you speak to women? How do you speak about women or to women? How do you interact with them? As sisters in all purity? In a way that is honorable? You know, the social media age, for all of its wonderful, profitable uses, has not helped us in this area, right? With all the stuff that's on social media now... It's demeaning to women, all the stuff that is in in social media where we are distorting God's beautiful uh, women made in the image of God. And now we present sex as something that we do to exploit people, right? That image or those images that we can see on social media, men, young men, distorts God's beautiful gift of sex. It's a distortion, a perversion of something that is good and beautiful and to be enjoyed for pleasure in the context of marriage. And not only that, but for reproduction and the gift of children, you see. It is a good thing. But because we're sinners, we distort and twist and pervert everything, right? God calls you by His grace to be a sensible young man, single or married, who flees sexual immorality and pursues satisfaction in Jesus. And that is the issue, isn't it? The issue is not just, heart, stop doing this. Heart, stop doing that. Get out of there. Sinful lust, sinful desire, sinful passion. But also, pursue Christ. Fill your heart with the beauty and the treasured one who is Jesus. So that you don't even have time to be pursuing those other things. Filling your heart with those things that are never going to fulfill you or satisfy you. Only Christ satisfies. Only He does. Is it possible to be that kind of young man who is pure? Absolutely. Remember Joseph? Joseph didn't give in to his to fornication. Joseph fled, didn't he? He didn't stick around like, well, let me think about that, young lady. Let me think about, let me consider right now as I watch you whether I should or I shouldn't. What did he do? He fled. He ran. He fled youthful lusts. What about Josiah? Josiah as a youth, not only in the area of purity, but Josiah as a youth, as a teenager, brought revival to the nation for a time in the Old Testament. He was just a youth. Daniel feared God and not man, and he was a young man devoted to prayer, who had a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. David, little David, zealous for the glory of God, put his life on the line, not because he was a great guy, not because David was a courageous guy, but because he had a high view of God and trusted God. And he slew, right, Goliath. And what about our Lord Jesus? Fully devoted to his heavenly Father and his word, and yet he lived in submission to his parents as our Lord, as the perfect God-man. It's possible to be a young man and to be an example, right, of good deeds in multiple areas. Aren't you thankful that the Lord doesn't settle for low expectations as we do? In our world, that's what we have, right? Young people and young men, there aren't very high expectations for young men. But the Lord is telling Titus here, by means of of, of Paul, exhort the young men to be this way, which means that God has a high standard for young men. 
But there would be certain kinds of men and glorify him. And so the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we cultivate a sensible uh, character in our own lives? Very quickly. I know how it began for me. It began with salvation. For some of you who are young men, whether you're single or married, I don't want to assume that you are in Christ. You need to be saved. That's where it begins. An understanding of the grace of God is what propels you to live a life of sensibleness in all of these areas before the Lord. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to get better and I'm going to do, work harder and do better when people would tell me to be a particular kind of young man. But it wasn't until I viewed myself and saw myself as a sinner before a holy God that this began. A life of holiness and sensibility for the Lord. It wasn't until I gave my life to the Lord recognizing his goodness in the gospel, the goodness of Jesus Christ, that Jesus had come to die for my sins and paid the price for my sins. And not only that, to rescue me from hell, but that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection conquered sin and death so that I didn't any longer need to live as an unredeemed young man um, enslaved to my own sin. Now I can live for the Lord. Some of you need to be saved. You need to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That not only you would be rescued from the wrath of God, but that you would be delivered from the power of sin over your life. Because it's not just about trying harder or doing better. It's about looking at God for help and crying out to Him, Lord, forgive me. I want to live for you. Sing your spirit into my life who's going to empower me to live for your glory. That's what it's about for some of you. And for some of us who are saved already, Listen again to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We understand as saved men that the grace of God not only saves us, but it continually teaches us and disciples us in the area of living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present world, right? So the more that you understand the grace of God, His saving grace, the more that it should propel you to holiness and not libertarianism on the one hand, or on the other hand, to be legalistic. Neither of those two are Christ-centered sanctification. The more that you understand the grace of God, the more that you should be led and driven to holiness in the Christian life, to want to be set apart. So it's an understanding of the grace of God. That's how we foster a sensible character, first and foremost. Secondly, be a young man of the book. Be a young man of the book. Get into the Word of God where the mind of Christ is revealed, right? Get into the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? Answer. By keeping it according to your word, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The great R.C. Sproul, who just passed away, faithful man of God, writes this, The mind is like a garden that, if not carefully looked after and cultivated, quickly becomes a wilderness So it is with the Christian mind. Leave it alone and it will swiftly become worldly in its thinking. If then you would be sober-minded, a sensible, prudent Christian marked by sound judgment, steep your mind in God's word and apply it. So simple, right? Understand the grace of God. Be a man or woman of the book. 
Thirdly, be serious about your sin. You want to be sensible? Be serious about your sin. John Owen writes this, Do you mortify? That is, kill your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And if you read John Owen's works, he's not talking about moralism or, by, or doing this by your own moral bootstraps. He talks so much about being Christ-centered in that pursuit, Right? and being spirit-empowered in your pursuit, your active pursuit of putting sin to death in your life. Be serious about your sin if you want to be sensible. And don't compromise. Sever those areas of life. Uh, Starve your sin, if you will. For some of you, if you want to be sensible, you need to be so serious about your sin that you're willing to put aside an electronic device in this day and age. If you want to be sensible in the area of purity... Maybe it means that you don't put yourself in situations or hang around people that cause you to sin. That is whether you're a single man or a, or a married young man. Be careful with your friendships. Starve sin. Sever those areas of life that you know are causing you to dishonor the Lord. Right? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27-30? through 30? If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your, uh, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. What was he talking about? Literally uh, uh, chop off limbs? We'd be a pretty ugly looking people if that was the case, right? Speaking figuratively, take drastic measures about your sin. Take, be serious about your sin. And can I give you a fourth one? Don't do it in isolation or individualistically. Do it in community. Be mentored. Ask for mentoring as a young man. Many young men, single or married, want to be autonomous and not accountable. But this is not God's way, right? You are to be teachable and surround yourself with godly older men. A lone ranger young man is a what? A what? A dead ranger, right? A lone ranger is a dead ranger. None of us were designed for isolation. We need God and we need other people. And for us as young men, we need older men in our lives. So young men, especially, you need to surround yourself with older godly influences in your life. Don't do this in isolation. And then last but not least, focus on the greater treasure who is Christ. Focus on Jesus. Recognize that the human heart has been wired for worship, right? Our hearts are like a, like a magnet drawn to worship. And the question really is, what or who are you worshiping? What are you being drawn to in your life? And so you can't say, heart, stop doing this. Stop desiring. Stop wanting. Stop worshiping. Yes, the issue is stop doing this, but also fill your mind with Jesus. Focus upon Christ and His redemptive work on your behalf. And the reason for why He died on the cross. That He gave Himself so that you would no longer be slaves to your sin, but now have Him as your Master, as your Lord, as your precious Savior. To follow Him. See, we worship lust and pleasure and possessions and money and prestige and image and selfish ambition and self-esteem. We want to feel good about ourselves. We can even worship marriage and children and ministry. And all of these things can become idols of the heart but can't fulfill us. God has created the human heart ultimately to be satisfied only with Him supremely. Only with Him. And only Jesus can satisfy the human heart. Listen to John Owen. 
When someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their attraction and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin. The more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. There is only one way to be revived and healed from our backslidings so that we may become fruitful even in old age. We must take a steady look at the glory of Christ in His special character and His grace and work as shown to us in the Scriptures. See, Jesus is more precious, more beautiful, more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. Amen? And especially during this time of Christmas season, young man, remember the reason for the season who is Jesus Christ, the treasured one. Amen? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that the Lord doesn't lower standards for anyone in the church, right? Young men are called to be these types of men, and we as a church are called to mentor young men by engaging them relentlessly, instructing them relentlessly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to be a church that is next generation focused, making disciples for your glory. Help us to be a church full of older godly saints who have a zeal and a passion to invest into the younger and help young men, single or married, to, Lord, make their life count here on this earth, beginning with salvation, beginning with making a commitment to follow you and for those who are committed to following you, that, Lord, this would be a reminder of the type of man that the young man in this day and age should be so that we display Christ to a lost world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.